Hey everyone, this is Vince Pacello, producer of the MSU WMA podcast, where we have Costa continue part two out of two of his conversation with Barry Ritholtz. Hope you guys enjoyed the rest of the show. So again, I just want to kind of switch gears a little bit here and talk a sure. little um, Ritholtz Wealth Management. So um, going back a little bit, what kind of ex- inspired you to venture out, start Ritholtz for yourself? And obviously you had partners in that, Josh Brown, and uh, I think Chris Ben was in there as well. Mike Batnick, the, the four of us. And, yeah, Mike, Mike Batnick, of course. Um, so what, what kind of got you on that track to start your own firm? So um, I, I, I want to phrase this precisely right. And I I don't want to use the wrong words. So it wasn't that I was a reluctant entrepreneur. It was just that I had never thought about launching a firm during the previous, I don't know, let's call it 20 years. Um, I started in the mid 90s, right right in the midst of the tech boom. And that was a lot of fun. I worked as a trader. It was pretty clear early on that as a trader, your income swings up and down and it was it was a lot of fun, um, but I I recognized I was trading for fun and not for profit, and it was one of those few rare times where you have an insight about yourself that um, perhaps other people see and you don't. I, I got lucky that around the same. So the concept of 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 being a um, Renaissance person of of having an interest in a lot of things and not being hyper-focused on just one area and, and bringing in all these different disciplines to help you think of the world as an investor, as a trader. Um, I was really fortunate that the first book I read, so let me back up a little bit. So in the gap couple of years between college and law school, I read a bunch of books about how to succeed in law school. And most of them weren't really helpful. One or two were a little bit about process, what to expect. And the key takeaway I got was how challenging and competitive and difficult it was. I couldn't skate by the way I did in high school and non-physics class in college. I had to actually work. And so going into law school with that understanding um, was really helpful. And I ended up doing really well um, in school. When I, I, I approached approach trading with that same sort of autodidactism of, I'm going to see if I can learn enough to teach myself about this. One of the first books I read was Jack Swager's Market Wizards. And to me, the takeaway from the book, as you plow through all these different traders doing all these different things, they never say to you, buy this, sell that. It's always about understanding your psychology, understanding your behavior, understanding how you perceive the world affecting your decision-making. And that's a pretty significant thing um, in the world of trading. And my interpretation of that book led me in the, in the early to mid-90s to behavioral finance. Now, if you're, um, if you're in the world of psychology and you're reading um, Amos Tversky and Danny Kahneman's research in the late 80s and early 90s, if, if you're an academic, you're certainly familiar with what they're doing. 
But if you're in the world of finance, there really had that hadn't really. This is long before Moneyball came out. This was long before um, various people like Bob Schiller or Richard Thaler were writing for a mass audience. This is you know 25, 30 years ago, and I got really lucky. I happened on a on a book by Thomas Gilovich, a professor at Cornell. And the name of the book was How We Know What Isn't So. And really a sort of interesting, fascinating look. You know, information theory and cognitive issues, they all kind of come together at, at a nexus where you're taking in a lot of information, processing it and making a decision. And what you learn from, from that group of people, what you learn from Thomas Gilovich and then the, the major publications by Thaler and Schiller and Kahneman, um, uh, Dan Arley, you could throw into that book and the group and Meyer Statman. And um, there's, I'm, I'm leaving out a hundred other people, but th those are probably the better, better known names in that space. Um, is, is that how you perceive the world has such a impact on, on your decision-making process but not just how you perceive the world, the internal errors in our wetware, the, we, we, were, we have evolved to stay alive on the savannah. And very often the things that help keep us alive work against us in the capital markets. Immediate react, you know, fight or flight, that, that's really effective in, in allowing you to survive long enough to pass your genes along. It's terrible when when the market's crashing and you know the, there's an old joke um, in the middle of a, a, a market crash. Someone asks a, a trader, you know, this is everything's terrible. How how are you sleeping at night? Oh, great, fine. I sleep like a baby. You sleep like a baby. The market's getting killed. How is that? He goes, yeah. Every two hours, I wake up crying, wet myself, and yell for mommy. And you know, it's kind of a funny joke because. Uh, your first impact to sleep like a baby is, oh, babies sleep very peacefully until you realize, well, newborns don't sleep peacefully. Mm -hmm. And and that whole idea about your first and second impressions, understanding the different way uh, we react to stimulus. And, you know, when, when your finger's on the trigger for moving a few million dollars around, and if you're right or wrong, it's expensive or lucrative. Uh, you know, so much has been written and said about this. Uh, it's just redundant me talking about it now. But but that said, I was really fortunate to have found my way down that rabbit hole in the mid 90s, long, long before, you know, the average, forget the average person, the average trader, the average investor was was kind of um, unaware of it. So whoever stuck that book on that shelf in Barnes and Noble, because this was back before Amazon even existed, Whoever moved that there, I owe a huge debt of gratitude because finding my way into the world of behavioral finance and having it affect my trading, what I wanted to do with my career, it was, I, I, I quickly realized I should really be on the research and, and analysis side rather than just swinging cash around, which was so much fun, but not necessarily what you want to do for your whole career. Awesome. So something that I've noticed about Ritholtz is uh, a big part of what you guys do, at least externally, is like the content production. So between you, uh, Josh, 
um, uh, Batnick and um, obviously Ben Carlson yeah. podcast and you have your own podcast. How much of that was something that you set out to do when you started Grit Holtz and how much of it was just, this is <laughs> kind of just happened? So don't forget Nick Majuli and, oh, and Blair yeah. Duquesne. Yeah. And Absolutely. Duquesne. Um, <laughs> um, so I would like to say I'm an evil genius who plotted this whole thing out, but, but the reality is I'm incredibly disorganized as a person. Now it's great to have free association of thoughts and, but that makes you a little disorganized. And one of my routines for trying to stay organized when I was a trader is I'm up early each day. I would type out a, on, on a sheet of paper, you know, here's what I'm looking at today. Here are the stocks on my watch list. These are the economic releases. So I'm not surprised by anything. These are the earnings releases that come out today. I want to know about that. Here are some things I'm watching. And then uh, I would put together a chart or two to, to look at. And then these are the stories I want to read later today to become more knowledgeable about this particular area. And so I, I wasn't doing this to publish. I was doing this to get my act together each day. You know, it really helped me focus. Uh, you know, uh, the trading day, it's, you know, there's a certain wave that comes and goes. You sit at your screen, you read all the news, the market opens, you may or may not be trading something on behalf of clients, buy this, sell that. You go through a whole day and then there's, you know, things slow down around lunchtime and then it gets crazy again towards the end, towards the, towards the close. Like it's very easy for that day to be completely open-ended and lacking in any structure. And I wanted to kind of create a little bit of structure to keep me organized. Well, I started doing that and it didn't take long for, before other people were, hey, can I make a copy of that? You're on a trading desk, it's you know 20 feet long and there's people on both sides of the desk. And, and so it, what started out as a printed thing eventually became an emailed thing. And then eventually moved to Yahoo GeoCities, uh, which no longer exists. Um, yeah, but, before. <laughs> so. right. It it was it was one of the early blogs. Uh, it was HTML. You had to learn HTML to to publish on it. Um, and something odd happened. Uh, so you know, in two thousand and one, I was working in a firm. My office was on Long Island, but the headquarters was twenty ninth floor of of Two World Trade. And so when 9-11 happened, I got my head trader on the phone who gave me a running narrative of everything happened. I took a bunch of notes, which I, I never do. I never took notes in college or law school, but I just felt like, hey, write this down. And that night, I e every, everybody from our office got out safely. Um, although there were people who were on vacation, we couldn't reach for like weeks. It was the whole thing was just utter mayhem. Um, and I, I called our head trader and I said, I'm gonna email you this, tell, tell me what you think. Is it, did I get this right? Are these your thoughts? Is it, is it accurate? And he goes, yeah. And I, I asked him, are you okay if I just throw this up on the site? I think our clients and other people would be interested in knowing what happened and that we're all okay and blah, blah, blah. And he said, sure. So I do that, I hit publish that, I think it was that night. Um, and the next morning I wake up and I have you know 700 emails in my inbox. It got picked up by Yahoo. So way back in the day, Yahoo was everybody's homepage. And to some degree, there's still some ungodly amount of traffic every day, 40 million page views or something ridiculous. And, um, and suddenly uh, I recognized um, 
wow, this is, this is uh, just insane. You have the ability to communicate with an audience, not just, you know, 500 clients, but the whole world. And so I started publishing more long form or more, you know, not just highlights, but here's what's going on. Here's what I'm looking at. At the time, there weren't a whole lot of, of blogging platforms. And in the world of economics and markets, there was a handful of professors. Like I remember um, Brad DeLong at Berkeley was publishing regularly online in the early 2000s. And so in like 2003, uh, Six Apart ran a software um, called, trying to remember the name of the software, can't believe, uh, Typepad. Uh, so Typepad comes along and it's a WYSIWYG, you know, like Word or, or WordPerfect, whatever you type, formatted, no HTML required. <clears throat> and so I started publishing then and, and that served a couple of purposes. First, um, Librarian of Congress, of Congress, Daniel Bornstein, very famously said, I write to figure out what I think. So it's a very helpful process. I had written in, in, for one of the college papers, I always wanted to be a better writer. And to be a better writer, you have to do two things, read really good writing and then write frequently, write every day, get a into a habit. So I started doing that daily and I found it was enormously helpful as a process, just spend a half hour or an hour jotting some thoughts down. And so you could throw it up on the blog and if anyone reads it, it who cares? Well, by the time we got to 0506, an audience had come around and I, I had always been interested in real estate. And it was pretty clear from a number of data points that real estate had gone off the rails. Something was wildly wrong. And so I start writing about the coming you know, market crash, the coming real estate crash. And to my credit, it was never the market is crashing tomorrow. It's always, hey, this is out of whack. Mm -hmm. I can't tell you when it's going to collapse, but eventually things that are unsustainable, things that can't go on will eventually stop. So either I'm wrong and this keeps going or this will stop. And if it stops, it will, it will end badly. And, um, you know, I, I recall doing an interview. So after publishing on a regular basis, and by that time I'm, I'm starting to do radio and starting to do TV. I was writing for the street.com around 02 or 03, something like that um, was, was on the right side of the end of the tech crash. Didn't mean the bear market was over, but tech had gotten really, hey, listen, any sector that's gonna continue to be around down 80%, is a good buy, and, and that's about what NASDAQ fell. Um, counterpoint, well, tell, tell the steam engines and leather belt companies that same thing, but that's a little too narrow. You have to be really broad, and I thought technology wasn't gonna disappear, so I started showing up in radio. I started doing TV all the time. I was a regular on Cudlow and Kramer, which eventually became Cudlow, and they used to, in, in 07, uh, I was the nervous bull. We were long. I describe myself as miserably long because you knew it was going to end. You just had no idea when. And markets peaked around October of 07. And in, in the beginning of 08, markets had fallen enough that I was comfortable saying, okay, everybody out of the pool. Back then, we were managing money for institutions and others and, and moving to all cash in 08 and selective shorts. 
was widely mocked by that summer. Suddenly I was less of an idiot than, uh, than, than people were saying. And, and so it, none of this was planned. All of this just kind of happened uh, a little bit of luck, a little bit of smart and, and a little bit of good timing. And the, by the time 09 came around in, in March 09, I went on Yahoo finance um, and I'm the biggest bear on the street. I've been negative for people were mocking that until it started looking accurate. And I just saw all these guys who overstayed their welcome. They would be right and, and just not understand when to declare victory and go home. And I remember having a conversation with a buddies and I said, if, uh, if I do that, I want you to slap me upside my head. Don't let me be that guy. This is somebody who, you know, I, I wrote a piece for the street.com called cult of the bear. And as an exercise, I said, let's figure out if my real estate thesis is right. And real estate drops 30%. What does that mean for the banks and everybody else in the Dow? And I come up with a number of 9,800 as fair value for the Dow. But we were around 13,000 at the time. And I said, if we break 10,000 because real estate is crashing, well, that's going to cause a, a 4,000 point panic. And a friend who's a technician says, no, that's not, you know, just to show you how much dumb luck is involved in life. I said, 4,000. He goes, that's too much. Let's make it 2,000. I go, ah, that's too little. Split the difference, 3,000. I swear that was the conversation. So that's how I ended up with Dow 6,800. There was no you know, deep, thoughtful analysis. It was spitballing how much the market's going to collapse after you break 10,000. So as we start to approach Dow 6,800, I said to myself, let me not be that guy that overstays his welcome. Because you were watching people who were bearish and then doubling down. Dow 5,000, Dow 4. I remember seeing Dow 3,000 on CNBC. And I'm like, you know, anytime the markets get cut in half, that's a pretty good washout. And 18 months, it's funny to say this today, from mm -hmm. the peak in October to the bottom in March, 18 months, that, that's no, noticeably short time as opposed to 2020. That was barely eight weeks, not even. So I went on Yahoo Finance TV and said, yeah, I know I've been the big bear, but if you're short, you could cover your shorts. If you're in cash, you can buy stocks. Um, when, when markets get every, every meter I look at, every indicator I look at is as oversold as it gets, you can buy them here. And the next day, that was the low in the market. Now you could have asked me the same question a month earlier, a month later. Again, dumb luck that it happened. Uh, the day of. And they actually recorded that on one day and it broadcasted the next day and that was the, the market bottom. So people, that's a whole long ass way of telling, answering your question. Yeah. People start offering me money to manage. And I spend, this is, you know, 09. And I spend the better part of six months politely declining it. By then I had met Josh um, we met at a conference in Coronado Island in California, outside of San Diego. Um, he hated being on the sell side. He wanted to come on the buy side. Brokers are on the sell side. Advisors are on the buy side. Um, so I said, come work with us. You, you're a smart guy. I like what you write. Um, you, you basically know how to run the client side of it. Bring clients over and, you know, let's see if we can turn you into a, uh, an advisor, and he, you didn't have to ask him twice. 
it took him about a month of watching me turn money down to say, dude, do you have any idea how hard it is to raise capital? You, you have to stop turning this money down. What, what are you thinking? And my answer was, I'm thinking that I love the research and the writing. I love the management of the portfolio. I'm afraid that that whole process will just be infected by panicked clients calling up and infecting you with their virus. And, and he said, how about this? You do what you're going to do. I'll handle the back end. I'll handle the client side. Let's just start taking this money in. So, okay. I mean, I don't have to do the stuff I don't want to do, but I, we can, I can still write and research and manage the money. I'm in. So we started doing that. We got to about $40 million pretty quickly. And then uh, I said, okay, I've had enough of being a shop within a shop. Their rules are constricting us. You know, I'm literally on TV whining about hedge funds saying, come for the high fees, stay for the um, underperformance. And, um, and then I get back to the office and there are four new hedge funds on our platform. It was clear we were on paths that were going to crash. And to Josh's credit, he said, you know, we can't really launch with this little capital. We need $100 million. I'm like, okay, let's do that. So we spent the next year cranking it up to just about a hundred million and launched in September, 2013. We just turned seven last month um, and we're up to about 1.7 billion. So it was not exactly let's create a whole bunch of content and tell people, hey, this isn't that complicated. If you're smart and hardworking and disciplined, you could do it yourself. Um, and if you don't want to do it yourself, well, you can always ask someone like us, but this is not undoable on your own. People responded to that. And, and we've been pretty straightforward about the value proposition we, we offer to clients. Um, so, so it wasn't so much as here's the grand plan as just tacking into what works. You know, when the wind is at your back, you continue going in that direction. And so um, Josh wrote when, when Mike, um, joined us, he had been thinking about writing. And when we launched the new firm, he launched his blog not too long after that. And that turned out to be all upside surprise. Um, we knew Ben, uh, from other areas, Ben Carlson had been writing wealth of, of common sense and had an institutional background. He turned out to be a really good fit. Um, I knew Blair from, I don't know, 20 years ago. She worked for somebody at UBS that I used to work with, or was it Prudential, which be, it was a series of sale, sales and eventually um, one of the companies became UBS. But anyway, I know her from like 02, 03. We were in the same building. We both worked in the Chrysler building. And, um, you know, I, I had been after her to join us for a couple of years. Eventually um, she came around and, and it's great having a blog from a female perspective because um, most of Wall Street, at least in the blogging community, a lot of it is is male. So it's really nice to have a, a, a female voice. Our, our quant, Nick Majuli, um, I don't know many people who have his facility with both numbers and words. Mm -hmm. And so it wasn't it it wasn't so much a conscious decision as let's build this giant content machine as it was that we tend to see and find and notice people who also are, are strong on the content side. Like that was never in the business model. Hey, let's keep adding blogs. It was just, 
anytime someone wanted to to write and showed a skill fit set for it, look at um, uh, look at Tony Isola's blog or Dean Isola's blog as well. Uh, the people we hire tend to commute, be very. Not only are they very, they've drank the Kool Aid. They're very enthusiastic about everything we do, but they're also really good communicators. And so they have the ability to put down in words a, a, a philosophy and an explanation of what people should and should not be doing that you know seems to resonate with the investing public. So one last question I had for you before we kind of wrap up here, and this is uh, mainly aimed at what a majority of our listeners are, which is um, younger college students kind of looking to get into the industry. So I want to ask like, what's maybe one piece, one or two pieces of advice you would give to a younger advisor or a college student who's interested in the industry? um, And what can they do to break in or, uh, you know, start getting into the industry? So, so it's funny because I, I ask um, all the podcast guests, what sort of advice would you give to a recent college grad interested in your area? And I, I did a post where I answer all my own questions, the 10 questions I normally get to ask. Now, because we're all working from home, it's, it's cut down to five because uh, we have different time constraints. But, um, but I was thinking about this the other day. And, and one of the things I wish I knew when I started out, both as a lawyer who was unhappy as a lawyer and somebody as a, a trader and then eventually a researcher and, and then a strategist, was... Now being on the other side of, of the hiring desk and supervising and managing people, I, I continue to be shocked at how often employees are upside surprises, right? So I'll give you a perfect example. Um, I, I could name any employee in the firm, but you mentioned Batnick and I mentioned Nick, let's use them as an example. Batnick has said to me, you know, the first year you, I worked with you guys, you didn't say two words to me. And I'm like, I don't believe that. You, you were a research monkey like I was a research monkey as a kid. I started as a research monkey. And you were, and I, we, I would, you would get assignments. We would talk. He's like, nope. Mike has just been one upside surprise after another. And not only did he start the blog, which is thoughtful and interesting and insightful, him and Ben... Uh, have these phone calls every day. And eventually they said, you know, this is a good podcast. And they start recording Animal Spirits and it becomes a surprise. And But it's not just things that they try that's successful. It's that anything I ever asked Mike to do, um, he's over and above the call of duty and he continuously surprises me with things. Uh, Nick Majuli is another one. It's not just that suddenly we find another great writer. We didn't know he was a great, we knew he was a decent writer, um, but we hired him for his math chops, not for his writing chops. And then that blossoms. And then we start working on a couple of projects and he gets dragged into it. We just completely, earlier this year, we just completely redid the corporate website. And he was unbelievably helpful in that. There were a couple of operations issues that came up and he's been amazing with that. And I wish I understood today what uh, I, I wish what I understand today about the value of an employee who just continuously surprises to the upside when I was in my 20s starting out. Because my attitude was, 
what's the least I need to do to get the hell out of here and then go out and have a little bit of fun and enjoy my night or enjoy my weekend. I was no upside surprise whatsoever. And um, that, I, I don't even know how to explain, explain it. I, I think it's, there's some of this is generational um, because the world has become so much more competitive. Like I'm kind of in the valley between two, you know, I'm not a baby boomer and I'm not a Gen Xer. I'm sort of in between the two. And so when you see that sort of big demographic bulge and everybody is more competitive, I got lucky. I mean, if, if, if I was born five years later or five years earlier, I probably wouldn't have gotten into college with my grades. I always was a good test taker. I wouldn't have gotten into law school. So, so it was really, you know, just a lot of, of serendipity. And I, I think what I'm seeing amongst, I don't even know if you can use the phrase millennials anymore, but just recent college grads are aware of how competitive the world is and how challenging it is to stand out and what they need to do. And I didn't learn that for, I don't know, 20 years, um, which is probably why I ended up launching my own firm because had I known that 20 years ago, I, I might be a little less entrepreneurial. Maybe I would have been more successful on the corporate side. Although truth be told, my, my attitude still sucks. I have no interest in, never had any interest in working for anybody. But I can say as someone on the other side of, of that desk, um, I wish I would have known how much goodwill and job security and salary raises upside surprises to your boss. Wait, you mean I, I shouldn't just do the bare minimum assignment that was given me? Because that was always my attitude and I don't think it helped me. And now seeing people just continuously delight with their work product um, really has uh, ha is something that I wish I would have known, you know, 25 years ago. Yeah. So it's just about, it's about doing more, you know, not necessarily, like you said, the bare minimum, just trying to go up above and beyond and, and add value in that way. Um, so Barry, I wanted to thank you again uh, for, for coming in and, and talking with us. Um, it, it went a little long, but I think we added uh, or we gave our listeners a lot of value. And uh, I think they'll learn a lot from this interview. Wait, I went long? Wow, it's hard <laughs> to imagine. I can't, I can't understand how the guy with the three-hour podcast yeah. went long in an interview. Thank you. Hello, everyone. This is Vincent Pacillo, producer of the MSU WMA podcast, where we are inspiring and educating the next generation of financial planners. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed it, Please check out our channel on all platforms such as Spotify and Apple Podcasts and check out our social media at MSUWMA and MSUWMA.com. Mm -hmm.